This is Gestoras. El episodio de hoy es en inglés. Today's episode is in English. Pueden leer una transcripción en español en nuestro sitio web o pueden ver el episodio en YouTube con subtítulos en español. Gestoras Podcast brings you conversations with cultural managers from the North and the South. We celebrate the work of Latina cultural managers sharing their stories of success, challenges, and lessons learned. The episodes alternate between Spanish and English each week. Carla Ectela Rivera is the executive director of the Arts Administrators of Color Network. She is a writer, performer, activist, and arts advocate, fighting to uplift and create opportunities for, with, and in divested communities. Carla made national history as the co-chair of the Illinois Fine Arts Indicator Work Group, which developed the nation's first K-12 indicator in the arts, and is the author and narrator of the first-ever commissioned Young Audiences piece for the Joffre Bullet. She is the co-host of the Creative Generations Why Change podcast. So hi, Carla. It's so good to see you. So good to see you. Thank you for having me today. It's such a thrill to have you. I'm such a fan of you and your work and, and how you move through life. So it's just, I'm very excited to have more people get to know about you and about your work. So thank you for taking the time to do this. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Where are you speaking to us from? Uh, so I am uh, tuning in from my uh, home office uh, in the unceded lands of the uh, Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi peoples, uh, also known as Chicago, Illinois. Where I want to start is the point of origin. So you are now um, uh, the, the executive director of the Arts Administrators of Color Network, this major, major network that is empowering so many people um, in the arts. But where did you start out from? Where did the fire to start to fix the world come from? Oh, my goodness. Um, so I was born in Mayagüez, Puerto Rico, um, and um, came to Chicago um, at a young age uh, after my parents' divorce. Um, I was raised by a single mom uh, here in Chicago who also um, was and is currently a social worker who put herself through school up until my nearly my mid-20s. So um, BA master's and um, PhD in social work. So my mother was the first uh, Latina woman, cis woman to graduate with a PhD from the Jane Addams College of Social Work at the University of Chicago. Wow. And so um, <clears throat> my, my biological father uh, was not really a part of my life. Uh, but I was raised by my mother and her brother, my uncle, who came up, he was an Afro-Boricua man, Samuel Betances, and he uh, was a high school dropout who later through mentorship and, and, and through caring folks in his life, um, ended up graduating with his master's and his PhD from Harvard in education. And so um, 
you know, he has historically been involved in a lot of movement work and particularly um, around and influenced by the civil rights movement here in the United States. Um, and, you know, and my mother, you know, has, you know, had and has um, just a really strong compass of ethics of, you know, what is kind of right and wrong and, um, and, and really, you know, for better or worse, never held her tongue about those things. Right. Um, and so to that end, I was always raised with social justice issues around me and with a mind for social justice. Um, I would also say, you know, as an artist, my, my grandmother, Carmen Luisa Justiniano, uh, a woman who was a Hibara, and in, 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 um, and Hibara, for folks who don't know, is Puerto Rican for uh, campesina, country uh, person. And mm -hmm. so was raised in Las Maria and Maricao in Puerto Rico in the mountains um, and was a writer. And her autobiography is the only one that we know of that exists that is a firsthand account of um, Puerto Ricans of that generation kind of after receiving, um, after being, you know, after the annexation and after, um, you know, becoming uh, a colony of the United States. And so I grew up largely with, with my grandmother and my grandfather and my mother and had always seen my grandmother writing on legal pads, just consistently had an artistic practice, um, did not necessarily belong to an artistic community. That just wasn't, um, that just wasn't part of her lot and in, in life, but was always had an artistic practice, was a self-published poet, to the point that when things changed, she she published her own book of poetry, and then when certain things changed, she would just white it out in the book. <laughs> and so, um, you know, artistically, my root, you know, I'm rooted there. And when my grandmother passed in '92, um, my grandmother passed in '92. Shortly thereafter, I wrote my first play. And it really was a way for me to um, to process that loss because we were very, very close. Um, and so um, from there, I, I like to tell folks, I really am the product of municipal and philanthropic investments in the arts, particularly for, you know, working class, low income kids in the city of Chicago. So I became part of this program um, called Gallery 37, uh, which is now After School Matters. Um, and from there, really, you know, kind of grew with, with that work. Um, I was inspired in a lot of ways, not only because I had these words and these stories living in me, but also because there was such a lack of representation. And so, you know, there weren't a ton of nuanced and deep and thoughtful characters out in the world when we think about theater and film and television in the 80s and the 90s. 
And even today, we still aren't seeing, uh, we're seeing more of it. And, and, and there's some beautiful movements out there and some beautiful work being done. Um, but really, the market is cornered, particularly in the mainstream, by very few people. So I was really dissatisfied by that. And I was like, well, I'm going I'm, you know, to write the characters I want to see in the world. And, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, and, uh, you know, went to film school at Columbia College um, and did some, uh, some studies at New York University. Um, but I lived kind of a double life because the arts economy is not one that is um, robust, if you will. And so- It's a very gentle way of putting it. <laughs> my mother is so funny because my mother really wanted me to grow up cultured. And, yeah, yeah. And, and I wanted to ask you what led you to theater in the first place? So, and then to film, what, why that art form and not something else? Yeah, for me, um, you know, initially when I wrote my first play, it was just, you know, the, it was the playwriting program and I always knew I was a writer. And I would say also as a teen, I did teen, um, I was, I was the bureau chief of New Expression, which was a citywide magazine that was by and for high school students. And so um, I was really hungry to just put stories out there in any way, shape or form. And so um, that to me was the driving force for a lot of, uh, of the work. My power is in my words. I'm not a great actor. I'm not, but I uh, can can write a mean story. And so, um, and, and that I just knew from a very, very early age. Yeah. And I'm interested in the concept that you were raising a little earlier of making space and finding space, because you pointed out, right, that uh, we live rather precarious lives in the arts or uncertain lives. Um, were you aware of that as you were coming through, as you were growing up? Oh, I was always aware of it in large part because I, you know, I knew from, you know, the moment I told my mother, my mom took me to see Fiddler on the Roof. If, if so, if folks understand who Topol is, like he's synonymous, he was synonymous with that particular play. And so my mother took me to that play and, and my mother had this tradition of taking me to Broadway caliber shows um, because for her, it, participating in those activities was a gateway to the middle class. And so uh, it kind of backfired on her because the moment I saw this show and the moment I saw all of this love for Topol and, and this, and this incredible piece, I said, mommy, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's like, you're going to be a waitress for the rest of your life. So, you know, so although it was, I thought it was an insult and I, I took it as an insult. I took it as a, as an attack on my own talent, but the reality is no matter how talented you are, there were not enough outlets and the outlets that existed, there was an expectation of doing a significant amount of work for free. Right. And, um, and, and that, life, you know, either at a very reduced rate or free, um, you know, is not sustainable. And, you know, when I became a parent, that's when I was like, oh, I can't really sleep on people's couches anymore now. <laughs> and I 
moved into this kind of double life of working in the nonprofit sector um, in community-based organizations while also um, being part of local theater companies. And here in Chicago, Chicago is a theater town. And um, not only with kind of what I call the cultural bigs. So people will instantly, when they think about theater in Chicago, think about Steppenwolf or the Goodman. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it was places like Urban Theater Company, which was on uh, Division Street, which is in the Puerto Rican community, the heart of the Puerto Rican community here in Chicago mm. and, and other organizations. And so, and none of us were making any money, you know, I mean, it is only now that these organizations are starting to really get, um, get on their legs financially in significant ways. So um, I was always kind of in this place where I was juggling two different universes or trying to find a way to mix them. So I was running youth programming and I was like, oh, you know, we're going to role play. And we're, you know, so I always (laughs) and, you know, to to the credit of the arts, the arts, you can really put them anywhere. And all movements. Uh, and all initiatives are really carried through the vessel of art, if you think about it. In this double life that that you were leading, did you find uh, people were receptive? Some people were uh, skeptical? Um, it was a mixed bag. It was a real mixed bag. And, um, the, you know, in, in some instances, people saw the effectiveness of my strategies, particularly when I was doing youth development work. Uh, but as I kind of moved up within organizations and got director level work or was in fundraising um, and, and other areas, um, you know, my significance within these spaces was diminished because I was the artist. And so there was, in some circles, there is this perception that artists lack a certain uh, sense of business or, uh, you know, a certain formality that, um, and that we are more sensitive or, you know, um, whatever kinds of uh, uh, tropes you can think about when it comes to artists in non-artistic situations, those labels were put on me. And I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with being extra sensitive and in tune with people when you're thinking about community work. But um, it's certainly, you know, I I found myself in a lot of political situations. Um, I found myself in a lot of um, kind of cutthroat situations, Mm. which is, you know, there's certainly some of that in our sector and in our work, but this was really different. And so I had to, um, you know, I, I, I accepted those as learning moments. So I learned how to run a communications department. I learned about policy. I, you know, I took, you know, moms who are largely immigrant Spanish speaking mothers and drove down to, um, to the state capitol. And I said, this is your house. Right. And that is largely driven by the values that were instilled in me at a very young age. So by osmosis, I got a lot of this. And so I was able to parlay that 
into the work that I was doing. And so, um, yeah. And for some of the, particularly the women, the younger women who may be hearing you, right, as you're talking about these really challenging um, spaces that you were in, right? Not only as an artist, but as a young woman, as a Latina. What is or was your approach to dealing with rejection, to dealing with opposition? How do you find this? How did you find the strength um, to to just figure figure out ways to engage with that and move, and move forward? Mm. Depending on where I was, um, I had to learn that those spaces that I was in were not artistic spaces, which are largely a lot more collaborative and a lot more trusting. And, um, you know, and, and by nature, um, there was a level of respect there. Um, and so, you know, I had to learn that in some instances I had to do a thing and apologize later. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that strategy. I'm a firm believer in <laughs> I always apologize. <laughs> this is the thing that I know will work. And and guess what? If you know, if it backfires, then I you know, me hago la loca or you know, or, you know <laughs> Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Well, because many times no no not off not always, but sometimes asking for permission is enabling gatekeeping. Facts. And there was a lot of times where I was told I was not ready. There were a lot of times, you know, and, and also by not only, you know, cis white males or in majority white spaces, but also in Latino spaces that were largely cis male occupied. And so, um, you know, and, 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 and that hurt even more than, you know, than, than the cis white men, because that I kind of expected from them. But in these other spaces where um, we were supposed to be community and, 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 you know, you were supposed to, and we had a shared history and a shared experience, um, you know, I quickly learned, um, you know, and I think this is part of the scarcity mindset as well that, you know, colonialism and, and, and a colonial mindset will teach you is that um, I have to be the one. I have to be the hero. You know, it's going to be me. And then there's also personalismo, right? Yeah. And that is very endemic in the Latina community where it's, mm -hmm. you know, it, this is the person that is the face of the movement and what they say goes. And so I, I never liked that. And I was always, I'm always uncomfortable with the word no. And, um, and I think, you know, when I've been told that I'm not ready, maybe in those instances, I might not have been, but how else are leaders supposed to learn? Oh, if, you know, if they're not just, you know, put, put out into the world and, and make some mistakes. And so, yeah, you got to get there somehow. And I didn't want anything handed to me either. Did you have people, uh, either mentors or someone who was exactly at the right place, right time for you, who helped you? Yeah. Who maybe stepped aside and gave you a space and, and what things, what kind of attitudes or, or movements that they, they made uh, for you were particularly helpful? Yeah, a couple. So, um, I would, I, I really have to give a lot of credit 
to one of my early, early bosses uh, back in 20, 2011, 2012, um, Diana Mendoza. She was the director of the youth development department uh, at an organization called Instituto del Progreso Latino and really um, gave me a chance uh, to run uh, a youth uh, uh, a youth out community outreach program on the south side of Chicago. <clears throat> and largely, um, and, and at that point, my resume was really all, it was art and restaurants. <laughs> that was my background. It was teaching artistry and, and the restaurant world because I did put years <laughs> into that industry through college and things like that. And so um, I gave a couple of scenarios on how I would run certain programs. And really that day she hired me. And, um, and that was also, it was in that place where I learned that I became, you know, that I was, that I was pregnant. And she was like, you know, you have choices, right? And, you know, and, and so just in every step of the, of the way, I really felt like she understood me in a way that other supervisors may not have and was always looking out for me. The job that I took was part-time. Um, after I had my daughter, she advocated for this work to be full-time so that I could have benefits and things like that. And, um, and I, I would absolutely say that she took a chance on me and really allowed me to, um, to just do the thing. Yeah. And, and, and I really credit her for getting me started in the working world. And, um, and, and she was a great help very, very early on. Um, and I would say the other person there were quite a few other people uh, a few years ago when I was having some challenges within my own workplace um, that I could lean on and just, they knew instinctively what my challenges were. But, you know, I, I, you know, I was in an organization where I realized I was making a hundred thousand dollars less than my white counterpart, mm. white male counterpart. And, you know, had some really significant challenges at, the, at that organization and, you know, really went to these women, Black women, Latina women, and a couple of white women. And they were just like, oh, we need to move you out of this space. What do we need to do? And, um, and they did. It's always, it's always beautiful when, when people use their power and their positions not just to create those spaces, but to see the people who could be in those spaces, right? Like, like this, like this woman saw you, she saw you, right? And your potential and what you could bring. And, and I think the other important part of what your, what your story is that she was willing to give up control, that she was willing to create the space and just give up control and see how it happened. But at the same time, providing support, like that's a really delicate balance there, but it's, it has to have those three things, right? Create the space, give the control, provide the supports, uh, and sort of think ahead to what this person is going to need. So now you are the executive director of the Arts Administrators of Color Network. Um, what is it? Uh, what is your role in it? What are your, your priorities? Yeah. 
So the Arts Administrators of Color Network uh, is a nonprofit organization um, that is national in scope. It was started by uh, two incredible uh, Black women, African-American women uh, in Washington, D.C., Kwanis Floyd and Ariel Davis. Um, and the short, short version of that story is that um, they found, quite often found themselves in spaces within the sector where decisions were being made about communities, uh, particularly communities of color. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it, it was the seminar, it was the workshop, it was the decision-making room, it was all of those spaces. And so um, they often found themselves being the only people of color in the space. And so they said to themselves, you know, one, this can't be right. And two, um, there's got to be more to this. And, you know, we are abundant as a network. And we also have to know that there are challenges that exist for people of the global majority. Um, and, and how do we create an environment where people can take off their armor and, um, feel held, feel seen and held and, and, um, share resources, share, um, stories, whether they be stories of triumph or stories of challenge. Um, and, and how do we grow that? So it became happy hours and happy hours became dinners and dinners became meetings. And then meetings became what in 2016, uh, was the arts administrators of color network. And so our, work is really about, you know, championing artists and artists of the global majority across the United States, whether they be in predominantly white institutions or whether they are in an entrepreneurial space where they are running their own institutions. Uh, it is um, about building that network, providing programming and opportunities for their own professional growth. And it is also an advocacy organization. Um, so, you know, I always say like we get to be um, the agitators in spaces where folks may not feel like they can agitate because their livelihood is on the line. Right. And so um, we recently uh, underwent a strategic planning process. And, um, you know, after a transformative gift from Mackenzie Scott, um, that begat kind of my hiring, the hiring of me in this space. Um, and um, we have three real mandates for the organization. One is to build the infrastructure of the organization. So right now it's just me um, as the paid staff member. So I'm excited that, you know, soon we'll be bringing on a development director to help with fundraising and, um, and other positions. We're growing our board. Um, the other is to continue to grow the network. So um, we have 12 affinity spaces, both cultural thread and work thread. Um, we have an annual convening um, that will be held here in Chicago in November. And then the other is to build a uh, by us for us legislative and advocacy uh, platform. And so that is work that we are beginning to undergo this year. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's a fantastic organization. Um, I've known Quinise for many years and she is just a force of nature and Ariel as well. And the field has such an enormous debt to both of them. 
do that. I want to ask you, because you were running a theater in Chicago, yeah. right? You were running the Free Street Theater. And what made you decide that you wanted to do this, that you wanted to lead, to uh, move away from running a theater and move towards running an organization like Arts and Ministries of Color? Even though I am by trade a writer, we still have a long way to go to create the environment that would allow me to just be a writer. And it would be a disservice to myself and to whoever comes after me to not take this dissatisfaction I feel, you know, about where we're at from a racial justice perspective, from a gender perspective, to not utilize the gifts that I have acquired over the last few years, even though I've had kind of an unorthodox pathway to where I am. It's funny because when people ask what you do, I really consider myself a multi-hyphenate. And so, you know, to that end, um, and people are like, what, what's that? I, you know, this is our future friends is that we're, I, I don't think we're, you know, this job didn't exist when I was a child so that I could dream about it. And I don't think that, oh, you know, when my child comes of age, that the job that they imagine uh, that they will acquire, the jobs that they will have will, ex you know, currently exist. Um, but um, I learned about and, and, and have been uh, involved in advocacy, right? I made national history as the co-chair of the Illinois Fine Arts Indicator Workgroup. So in the United States, Illinois is the first state in the nation to have a, um, a meaningful measure for accountability in the arts uh, in K-12 education. And I was the co-chair of that statewide workgroup. Um, you know, my history in, in understanding and equity, you know, in this country, all of those things, um, organizing, um, fundraising. I mean, I really picked up these skills over the years. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and initially, you know, when I led Free Street, um, I really thought that I would be there for a really long time. I became an ED for the first time in October of 2019. And then perfect timing, perfect timing right? And so I had to learn real quick, you know, what the hierarchy needs were for the organization. And really for the first two weeks, we really didn't do anything but, but check in on ourselves and deal with our humanity. And then we were like, okay, how do we pivot the work, et cetera. And so I, I learned very quickly how to lead in these ways. And, um, and I'll always be an artist. Uh, I want to ask you about your artistic practice, right? Because you you were in Second Story uh, in Chicago, and now you have something very exciting uh, coming up with Joffrey. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So yeah, I'm still um, a, a company member at Second Story. So I, I do that. That's the only place where I really have performed over the last decade. And then the Joffrey. And it's interesting because it is through, it was because of a conference that I attended, a statewide conference that I attended in my day job, if you will, that got me uh, this particular gig, which is um, I was contracted to write the first ever commissioned young audiences ballet for the Joffrey. Oh, 
Wow. Oh, wow. And I had, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 45 years old now. I saw my first ballet ever, uh, two years ago. Erica Edwards, at the time, she was the director of community engagement for the Joffrey. We met at uh, one state together in the arts conference in Galesburg, Illinois, uh, and had some fun adventures in this town um, that has some very interesting, um, they don't have Uber, we learned. very quickly and um but you know got to know each other over the course of a couple of days and on the train ride home she says um hey would you be interested in becoming uh in in engaging in this project and i said yeah but i've never been to the ballet before i don't i have no zero like the dance background i have is what has happened in my house and in my kitchen that is the extent of my dance um experience but you're a storyteller aren't you and i said yeah and so, um, you know, in in our industry, I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, we should work on a project together. And nine times out of 10, you know, it, that becomes the thread of conversation every time we see each other. Uh, but she was for real. And it, it got so real that I was on a call. Um, it was myself, Elisa Chavarri, who is an illustrator, beautiful um, uh, illustrator and uh, Amy Hall Garner, who is a uh, who is a wonderful choreographer, and um, we were on the call with Erica and the head of the Joffrey Academy and the entire marketing team and the entire develop. And I was like, oh, and these artists, respected agents, and I said, oh, this is real. Oh, this is yeah. Um, I need an agent, don't I? <laughs> and um, and and we pitched the story called Rita Finds Home uh, to the Joffrey Ballet, and they loved it. And the story is, um, I dug real deep here, uh, which is uh, about a young island girl who dreams about being in the big city. Um, you know, and, and, you know, in the beginning, the mom is like, well, this is where you are. This is where you're from. And, you know, you know, appreciate your surroundings. Uh, but they become displaced by a hurricane and it is on, and they, they move to a big city and it is. I'm not seeing any parallels with anything here. Not at all whatsoever. Right. (laughs) So Rita, through her own experience and through generous friends, finds her people and redefines what it means to be home in a, in a, in a different land. And it was, I was inspired in part, sure, by my own journey, but also um, it was a love letter to the survivors of Hurricane Maria, um, you know, many of whom were displaced uh, from the island in 2017. Um, and it was a co-production between the Joffrey and the Miami city ballet. And, um, and, and it's, it showed to over 4,000 families in Miami and it premiered in, um, July, was it July? In July of last year here at Navy Pier. And so, um, it's, was recently at Aurora university and, um, I am imagining that it has some legs 
uh, further down the line, but it really, it was an unlikely union, but um, I have found a really interesting artistic home at Joffrey and, um, and they've been really, really lovely. And um, do you think it would come to DC at some point? Perhaps folks can reach out to the Joffrey Ballet and, <laughs> but yeah. And so I continue to write and I continue to, um, to do a lot of work with second story and, and my own um, artistic work. And, and I continue to write plays and screenplays. I'm not as active as I would like to be. Again, I need to work myself out of a job first. I think there will be a point where I find peace with, what I've been able to do. And, you know, and I think this is what is often endemic in our sector is that people really want to hold on to particular roles um, because this is all they know. But, oh, you know, I can't, you know, I say I'm a Thea in training. I'm a, you know, I'm a Doña in training and I'm ready to live my best life in a bata and, you know, <laughs> it won't be legal pads, but it'll be, you know, an iPad or something. And, and I will continue to create work. Yeah. Cause I can't imagine you not writing till the last minute you'll be holding a pen or a stylus or something. Okay. I cannot imagine okay. you. Well, you were saying earlier, you know, how nine out times out of 10, when we say we have to work together on something, it doesn't happen. I've been saying a version of that to you for a bit. And I'm so, so glad that at least in this format, we got to do something together. Yes. We're almost at the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you, um, I think uh, we talked about this, that we are asking each guest who comes on our podcast to leave a question for the person who comes next or to put a question in the in the question bank for another one of our guests, and then to also answer the question of, you know, one of the questions in our bank. So are you ready for All this? Right. All right. So the question comes from Ninoska Medel, who is the founder of the Women's Orchestra uh, in Chile. And she asks, how can we occupy our situation as women who are privileged to democratize access to the arts. And she was referring to women who, have, who are privileged in the sense of women who have obtained a position of power, who have reached a position where they can uh, have some authority or recognized authority. So how do you use that situation to democratize access to art? That's kind of my, that's always been my mission. I think since I was a child. Um, and, I, you know, and, and of course, in the seat that I'm in now as the executive director of Arts Administrators of Color, um, my goal and the goal of the organization is to, you know, have us occupy spaces where we traditionally have not been and not just in the in the craft, in the making, because there's no shortage of artists of color, but there is a shortage of arts leaders in spaces making the decisions that move the needle for us. And so um, I will um uh from you know in 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 the seat that i'm in currently my goal is to leverage that power and the privilege that i have um to to be vocal in spaces where i might be the only one in the room mm -hmm. and to say this is not going to work um and you know one of the conversations that i have been having a lot um, particularly with folks who talk a good game about racial equity in, um, you know, in artistic spaces is to say, you know, we collectively need to reimagine what this work looks like. 
And for those of you who are, you know, in a particular seat of power and sit in a particular seat and you've been doing it for a long time and you, you know, you also need to reimagine what your, uh, what your role is and how you are, you know, not throwing your hands and giving up and walking away unless that's what you want to do, but it is reimagining how you are, um, truly leveraging that to either get in the way of the forces that push against us or, you know, to create space for those of us that need to occupy your seat when you leave it. Yeah. You know, how are we really truly intentionally building those systems and how we, how are we intentionally stepping to the side when we need to and how are we as um as women of color you know in the space understanding where we can you know what our niche is and 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 where somebody else might be a better fit and that's really hard 100 percent sometimes because when there's so much scarcity and there's no space sometimes it's very hard to walk away from those situations but it's one of the ways that we can make the entire system different and stronger by saying, I'm not the right person, but this is the right person to do. Yes. I pride myself in being a connector. I, you know, my first month at AAC, Kwanese handed my, my calendar link to the country. I feel, I feel like, and I was in a lot of calls and I said to them, look, um, if, if folks have watched the matrix, you know, in the matrix, you know, if you take the red pill or the blue pill, well, Neo is the one, Neo is the one that's going to get us out of this. I am not Neo. I am not going to be the one that, 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 that solves all the problems. We are collectively going to do that. And, um, and, and so, and I want us all in the room because I represent but a sliver of the Puerto Rican experience, a sliver of the Latina experience, um, a sliver of the Chicago Latina experience, and of that generation that is ni de aquí ni de allá, which is because I am so, I'm still very connected to the island, um, but um, I do find myself in times um figuring out where, where I fit in. And I know that's not unique to me. Um, so I think it's very, very much a shared experience of Latinas. This being a sliver of the experience, a sliver, I think it's really beautiful way to express it. It's probably one of the things that most animated me to start this podcast because I've been in a lot of spaces and I get to be in a lot of spaces and a lot of rooms where I am the only one, uh, who is Latina, but First of all, I don't always need to be the person who's there. And second of all, when I'm sitting there, I'm thinking of all the people I know, particularly women um, I know who would be incredible to have in that group. That's what animated me to start this podcast because they're mostly, I think, uh, either invisibilized and we also don't have that connection, right, between North and South yeah. of the women um, who are doing this work. So that's another piece that animated me as well, right? And what you were talking earlier about the, the importance of community and the importance of connection and and network is, is so, so fundamental. Um, and also to know that we're not alone. Right? That's right. All right. So you've answered the question. Now, my final question for you is to ask you for your question. What would you like to leave for another one of your gestoras colleagues? So 
here's the question. What are the generational expectations that you are holding back or interrupting uh, in order for the generations that come after you to continue to move the needle in progress? Oh, I love that. All right, it goes into question bank and we'll bring it up for whoever's next. Thank you. Uh, Carla Estela Rivera, the Executive Director of Arts Administrators of Color Network. It's been just a joy to talk to you. And I thank, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming to Historias and, and, and sharing all these really, really uh, deep and important thoughts with us and with so much candor, which is you, basically. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, thank you so much. This episode of Historias was presented by Jimena Varela and produced by Anush Titanian. It was recorded in Washington, D.C. and Chicago and mixed at the Arts Management Program at American University, Washington, D.C. The music was by Eli Almik and the graphic design was by Bea Silva. Find us on YouTube at Gestoras on Instagram and Facebook at Gestoras Podcast. Thank you for listening.